So why don't we turn to the Gospel of John. We're in chapter 3. We're going to pick it up at verse 1. Uh, it's so exciting to be in John's uh, Gospel together. You know, these are just windows, uh, these Gospels, windows into the life of Jesus when he was here on earth. One amazing thing that we get to glimpse Jesus as he walked around on the earth. So I'm going to read this to us, John 3, 1 to 21. Now, there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. And he came to Jesus at night and he said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs that you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born again. Well, how can anyone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb and be born? Well, Jesus answered, Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh. But the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at me saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Well, how can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify of what we have seen. But still, you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe me. How then will you believe me if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. For whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already. Because if they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world. But people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. All those who do evil hate the light, and they will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But those who live by the truth come into the light, so that it may be seen plainly what they have done has been done in the sight of God. Liz, why don't you come and speak to us? Thank you. It's so good to be here. It's so nice. I really like this church, I have to say. I'm not supposed to have favourites, but you're my favourite. Um, I spent the whole day here. So I was with you this morning 
I gate-crashed the welcome lunch, and I cycled here this evening. Uh, so I'm on top of the world. I hope you have had a good day. And I'm looking forward to just spending the next 20 minutes or so with you reflecting, because it's a real privilege to be in community, and it is a joy to unpack God's word together. So let's focus on God. Let's still our hearts and our minds and be open and ready to receive uh, what God has to say through and in this passage. So let's pray. God, thank you so much for this wonderful privilege of being with you in this place, for being community. Thank you, Lord, for this passage and for all that it reveals to us of your love and your light in the world. We ask, Lord, this evening that you would open our ears to hear. Give us courage and boldness, not only to receive, but to let it sink in and to respond. And we ask this in your name. Amen. I want to start by saying that this passage is so rich. There is so much in this passage. It's one of those passages where you kind of don't know where to start because there's so much in it. It's as rich as a wonderful meal, like, for example, a beef bourguignon with dauphinois potatoes, the creamy ones with the cheese on top, you know, with a crusty bread and some beans with the butter, and then you've got like a plum crumble with the custard. You know, it's that rich. And after you've consumed all of that, you're like, oh, it's just so good. You know, I've got so much stuff here. The passage is like that. There, there is so much in this. There are the relationships that Jesus has with so many people in John's gospel. And then there's the weighty theology, the teaching. And tonight we're going to have a look at some of this stuff. We're quite early on in John, and so it's quite easy to recap uh, what's happened so far in the plot. So, after being acclaimed by John the Baptist... Jesus has essentially done two things before this passage. The first is that he turns water into wine, a sign of God's activity in the world. And the identity and purpose of Jesus is revealed in this act. Jesus shows the abundant grace of God. And then in chapter 1, verse 6, Jesus says, we have all received grace upon grace. The second thing that Jesus does before this passage seems at first utterly different from the miracle of turning water into wine. Rather than continue in this ministry with another sign of abundance, instead, Jesus enters the temple and just before Passover, he drives out the money changers and all those selling sacrifices. But while it might seem like a contrast, perhaps in tone and character from the first sign, Jesus' cleansing of the temple flows from exactly the same reality. Both acts are because of grace. Grace means there is simply no need for any other sacrifice in the temple. Jesus says, the Lamb of God takes away the sins of the world. 
There is nothing else to do. It's in this context then that Nicodemus comes to see Jesus. Jesus is still in Jerusalem during the Passover. He is in the Kedron Valley beside the Garden of Gethsemane. It's now called a grotto uh, and it's a small church, but it was a cave. And while Jesus was there, he receives a visitor at night from a very important man, Nicodemus. However, though Nicodemus is important, Nicodemus is a lost soul. And this is really important because looks can be deceiving. So many people like Nicodemus look like they've got it together. From the outside, they are shiny and polished. They appear to have friends and beauty and power. But they can still be lost souls. Nicodemus comes and visits Jesus under the cloak of darkness. He makes his way to this cave where he knows Jesus often goes. It is significant because Nicodemus was seen to be great, to have it all. He was a member of the Jewish ruling council and his name, Nicodemus in Greek, means Nikos, the first bit, victorious, and Demas, public or people. So that translates, this is his name, as conqueror of the people. Even his name is great. We learn several things about Nicodemus here. And there are two other passages where we learn a lot about him too. First, he was a minor celebrity in his own right, as one of the 70 Jewish rulers who served in Jerusalem, part of the great Sanhedrin, a powerful body that made decisions for the country under Roman rule. He was also a Pharisee, that is a strict observer of the law. We are told he was an expert in Jewish law. If that wasn't enough, he was also a scribe, since Jesus calls him Israel's teacher. He would have also been wealthy to be considered to be a member of the Sanhedrin. And he also, if you remember, assisted Joseph of Arimathea in Jesus's burial. He carried the cross, so he would have been physically strong as well as financially stable. In spite of all of this, all of this wealth and power, there was something different about Nicodemus. And this is the starting point. Nicodemus was able to see that although he had it all, he lacked something. He was set apart. And the context in which he lived simply wasn't enough. He was different from other members of the Sanhedrin, for Nicodemus was spiritually hungry. So he visits Jesus at night so that his interest in Jesus would not compromise his position with the Sanhedrin. After all, he had a lot to lose. He was in a difficult position. 
so he went at night. Bonhoeffer once said, the discomforts of darkness are the contractions by which we move into new life. The discomforts of darkness are the contractions by which we move into new life. We need the darkness and the turmoil of life, for they help us to see the light. They help us to move on and towards it. The Christian journey isn't shiny and easy. Nicodemus is curious about Jesus, therefore, and has seen that Jesus has caused quite a stir already through his actions in the temple and the signs and wonders that we read about before this passage. And so Nicodemus comes to question Jesus, to learn more and to make some important decisions in his own life. John's gospel plays out in many ways through serious encounters with individuals, through relationships between Jesus and various people, each of whom is called to make a decision. And they decide what to do through vastly different ways, depending on their own situations. And they are never straightforward decisions. It is almost as if John offers a variety of responses to Jesus. And he does this by offering layers of understanding. There's the literal understanding, and then there are the depths of spiritual understanding that people begin to grasp as they journey with Jesus. So for Nicodemus, he hears this and he misunderstands two of Jesus's terms. The first, that we need to be born again. And the second is the purpose of seeing the kingdom of God. So Jesus soon takes over this conversation, as he often does. Jesus says that all must be born again. Psychologists often say that when a child asks the question, where do babies come from? They're not wanting a literal answer. This is for those of you who have young children, don't worry. What they're wanting is reassurance. Psychologists and psychiatrists say that this is mostly about a child's identity, their awareness of themselves and others around them. It's about the child's origins and whether they are central to the parent's world. It's about the parent's loving affirmation you are mine, you are known, you belong, we love you. And the book Sapiens, which seems to have taken over, is a brief history of mankind by an author called Harari. And this answers the same questions. It helps us to reflect on the origins of history. And as grown-ups, this book is so popular because we too seek the same answers. We ask the same questions that Nicodemus asks in different ways. We are desperate and need to know where we belong, what our identity is, that it is secure because we are utterly insecure. 
Nicodemus's misunderstanding leads to one of the most profound statements of Jesus. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but have eternal life. Jesus is the focal point of God's activity in the world. The sending of the Son is the pivot of time, the measure of love. John frequently repeats this idea of God sending Jesus, drawing us into the question, well, why? Where do we come from? What is the importance of this? So Jesus answers, I tell you the truth. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the spirit. Jesus, as John depicts, often uses metaphors to talk about our identity, to deepen our understanding of the kingdom. The importance of water features so often in our passages. Jesus turns water into wine. People walk on water. Jesus walks on water. Jesus is offered water at the well. The image of water features so much, and so does the image of spirit. In fact, in the Greek, wind and spirit have the same meaning. They are utterly intertwined. And Jesus uses these everyday metaphors to root our understanding of Jesus in the everyday, that this is tangible and meaningful and has effect that is real in our world in tangible ways. And Nicodemus is hungry to understand this and struggles desperately to capture the full meaning of what this is. But we are so often hungry to be born again, to be born anew and afresh, that we miss what Jesus is saying about the kingdom. The kingdom is spiritually discerned. That is, you can't see it or grasp it unless you are born from above. The kingdom is spiritually entered that is, you can't enter the kingdom, which is synonymous for inheriting eternal life, unless you are changed spiritually, being born of water and the spirit. Differentiating this as spiritual birth, not physical birth. And this has references to baptism, repentance and purification. See, this passage is so rich and multi-layered. The Son of Man has come from heaven to be lifted up as a sign that God loves all of us in the world, even though the world in its very nature opposes him. Yet the Son has come to reveal and demonstrate God's love and to lead those who believe into new life. This is grace upon grace upon grace. Yet his very appearance will cause crisis. Crisis in the Greek 
which translates here as judgment. For all who encounter him will be judged. Those who do evil will flee the light and hide their deeds. Yet others who believe and confess their need will come into the life of grace and good deeds. At this, we notice something odd about Nicodemus. For he then disappears. Nicodemus, the Pharisee, the leader, simply fades away, presumably back to where he came from. Decided or undecided about Jesus, we do not yet know. It's a bit like in the film where the credits go down, the music comes up, and we know that it's the end of a chapter. But not entirely for Nicodemus. For there isn't an obvious happily ever after at this point. Because turning to Christ and that new birth involves time and energy and effort. And for Nicodemus, it doesn't happen straight away. And for many of us, the reality is, it doesn't happen straight away. It's a journey turning from darkness to light that is utterly ongoing. And we are left here as Nicodemus leaves with Jesus's words, words that echo two previous scenes. Jesus comes bearing the superabundance of grace upon grace, and his very presence demands our attention and allegiance. Jesus' presence seemed to reveal the character of those he encounters, which is why there's something for every one of us in John. Because our characters are unique, our experiences are unique. And it won't be the same as the person next to us or the person next to them. But it is guaranteed if we open our hearts. Jesus says, God's judgment has already been rendered for God so loved the world. This is the first and last word of this gospel, indeed of the whole Christian story. Jesus is setting the world on fire because of what Jesus talks of, this relationship, this relationship of child to parent, so close like the breath in our lungs to one another, the relationship of birth, the language of womb and water and wind and blowing and heart. This is a different language to talk about God. It is utterly countercultural. The shock that people hear when they talk about this rootedness of love can be overwhelming. I went to a wedding recently and a friend and I were talking about the royal wedding that happened a while ago when Bishop Michael Curry preached at the royal wedding. Do you remember that moment? I had my mouth open. The shock that people felt when they heard Bishop Curry preach at the royal wedding. They were less shocked about Michael Curry being a black African-American preacher, though that was utterly amazing, 
and more shocked about how he spoke about love. Love as being universal. Love as being utterly fundamental. Love as being able to move mountains. Love being God and God being love. This is what Nicodemus eventually discovered. Not in this encounter, but it slowly began to sink in as he realized that the world in which he lived and all of those trappings simply weren't enough as he carried on his spiritual journey. A light that illuminates his life even in darkness, his experiences of the reality of the awe and wonder of God. Today in this passage, we see a man who could be replaced by any of us here, being drawn deeper into the love of God, into intimate ministry. God is the bearer of life and love. The life comes from God through the Son in the Spirit. Life and love are intertwined together. Throughout John's Gospel, Jesus speaks of this relationship. But this life of love, this life and love of the Trinity is not a closed circle. This love is open to us. And I'm reminded of that Rublev icon, which some of you may have seen, of the Trinity. It makes this point so well with the three figures sat around the table. And as we view that image on the other side, it shows that there is room for us around that table. That we don't need to observe from the outside thinking that we're not good enough or worrying secretly that we're not adequate enough. For we are embraced and loved just as we are. So in this context, I believe that Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, and this is a reminder to us, you must be born anew by your own repentance and by humbling yourself before God and by the Holy Spirit's divine regenerative work within you. One cannot enter the kingdom of God by one's own effort. We must render ourselves to God, for only God can bring about the new creation. So this evening, as we think about what it means to be reborn of spirit, of water, Let's rethink, too, what it is to be part of God's kingdom, here and now. And as we open our hearts to God, how we, too, like Nicodemus, might be transformed. Let's pray. God, thank you for your patience with us, especially when we've been too busy to listen too self-absorbed to recognize you. Thank you for coming 
to rescue us from dark places and showing us your light for taking us by the hand and teaching us. Thank you for opening our eyes to your kingdom and flooding us with your Holy Spirit. Amen.